Welcome, uh, everyone. Um, I think we can start right now. Uh, welcome to Meet the Seller. Uh, my name is Metin Sangal. I'm at Boston College, and I'm a member of the executive, uh, SCR's executive committee. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to the Meet the Scholar uh, uh, session with Brian. Um, before uh, we turn to the session with him, a quick uh, note on this, uh, this series. This started, if you're not familiar with it, it started uh, back in summer, in June, uh, by the SCR leadership. And the purpose uh, is twofold. One is to create another forum uh, for us to interact, which is interrupted by, uh, by the pandemic, another chance to talk with each other, another chance to see each other, and also give it chance to uh, all of us to get to know more about uh, this uh, distinguished scholars behind some of the most influential uh, papers in our field and influential studies and research in our field. Uh, it has been quite well attended, and this is the 28th one. And if you would like to uh, see, and I encourage you to do so, the previous uh, Meet the Scholar sessions, if you attend, uh, uh, if you go to the STR website and there's a YouTube channel and Jao, uh, which is uh, masterfully administrating the Meet the Scholar sessions told me that there is now uh, uh, also the podcast version of this series. So you will be able to watch all the previous uh, Meet the Scholar sessions. Um, before we turn to our distinguished scholar uh, uh, for today, uh, let me quickly share with you the agenda for what we will do. So our plan is for, for the first 45 minutes, uh, we will, uh, I will introduce Brian and we will have a conversation. I will ask him a sort of question to get to know him, to get about his research, his story. Then in the second half of our conversation, we will open the floor to everyone. Uh, to ask questions. If you have any questions for Brian, in the, as you think about those questions, please post them in the chat. Uh, you can do it, of course, later, anytime. Please do it at the end, uh, you know, in the second half of our conversation today, you will have a chance to ask these questions directly to Brian. Uh, in terms of the ground rules, uh, again, please post your questions in the, to Brian in the chat, which we will turn next. And the uh, other thing is please uh, mute your uh, microphones. Uh, when you're not talking uh, and in, during the conversation so that it's not interrupted in the background, okay? Uh, with that, uh, let me uh, introduce our distinguished scholar today, Brian Silverman. Uh, for me, it's a particularly special uh, <laughs> chance to talk with Brian, someone who always I look up to, who had influenced me as a scholar when I started my career early on and continue to do so. And as you will see, it's always a pleasure to talk with Brian. Um, with Brian, uh, let me give you a quick introduction. Uh, Brian has one of those CVs uh, that are, you know, uh, I cannot do justice, <laughs> but uh, let me still give you a brief overview of uh, Brian's career. Uh, Brian is a professor of strategic management, uh, management at Rotman, um, and he holds the um, uh, chair of JRS Pierchard and Wilson Chair in Management. He has been there since 1995, with a three-year stint from 1980 to 2001 at Harvard. So he's been there for, for quite some time. Uh, so we'll talk about Canada and US at a certain point, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, he got his PhD in Business Administration from Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. Uh, he has written numerous very influential papers 
then most of these papers are at the intersection of competitive organization design. And he links it to technology firms, access and exploit of technological capabilities. Uh, I didn't know up until I researched uh, uh, his, uh, I looked at his uh, dissertation and even in the dissertation topic was directly on this topic on technological, technical capability, technical assets and firms uh, uh, diversification, the logic of corporate diversification. And in terms of the research, he had a very large span uh, in terms of the industries from biotech to uh, tracking industry to printers. And this research has been very, you know, resulted in many, many publications over the years, literally dozens of publications. Many of them are uh, very well uh, received and has been hugely impactful in our fields. And also uh, he got numerous awards uh, for these. And um, I will not go to the list, but I, I just want to um, mention the scope of these awards. Uh, these are from the journals as from entrepreneurship journals of business venturing to American Journal of Sociology, Strategic Management. And um, they had the, this, the, the spectrum is incredible in terms of influence uh, from entrepreneurship, uh, uh, not only mainstream strategy, but technology, organization design, uh, and, um, and sociology. Uh, it has been quite impactful. And uh, in addition to those, uh, Brian has been a very, very influential, very impactful teacher. We will try to get his insights on teaching aspects of our profession as well. In addition to all these research activities, and you know, he had so much spare time to do, he also got very much involved in several associations in our fields. Um, those include uh, Administrative Science Association of Canada, Consortium for Competence and Cooperation, CCC, uh, SMS, Strategic Research Initiative, and of course, AUM. In particular for, for us, he also was involved in the SCR very actively over the years. And he was an SCR officer from 2003, 2008, uh, which he concluded uh, his, his term in the leadership of our division in 2018 as the past division chair. He held several positions and he has been a member of several journals uh, over the years. Um, uh, um, over the past two decades, advances in strategic management. He was a series of this for many, many years. He was an associate editor in several journals. And very recently, uh, he, uh, well, tomorrow it will be three weeks, Brian. So you, uh, he started his term as the co, as a co editor of strategic management journal. Uh, with that, uh, welcome, Brian, to Meet the Scholar, and thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's, uh, you, you, uh, first, thanks for running these Meet the Scholar sessions. I've been enjoying them and uh, I've been, it's been fun to learn about other uh, folks in the field and some of the themes that have come out with some of the others, I think have got to come out today, largely around stumbling through life and ultimately finding yourself uh, happy as a professor. Um, and thank you for this very kind introduction. I'm not sure I can live up to it, but I, I'll try to you know, lie and, and make it work. I am sure we will all enjoy uh, this inauguration uh, more than the one that will follow. So thank, thank you for being with us. Um, so Brian, uh, it is typically we start uh, with the scholar sessions, uh, asking a question about 
your past, your story, if you will. Can you please tell us how did you end up in academia? What was your early formative years before the academia? And how did you end up being a scholar, in particular, a strategic management scholar? Sure. So, um, uh, and, and, and there's a story that has some of that, the serendipitous events that I alluded to. So I, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. So I was born in Brooklyn, which is part of New York City. Uh, I'm an only child. My parents were both high school teachers. And shortly after I was born, they both decided to become librarians, which meant that there were a lot of books around the house. Um, when I was at some point in elementary school, we moved out further on Long Island about 10 or 15 miles uh, to the suburbs east of, of Queens and Brooklyn. So uh, from age 10 onward, I grew up in a town called Roslyn. Two quick things. One is today, you know, nowadays we think of Brooklyn as a hip happening place. Back when I was living there, not so much. So, you know, we, we went to the suburbs. And the other thing, Roslyn's claim to fame in strategic management is that it's the hometown of Steve Klepper. So he was you know, a number of years ahead of me and he was gone before I showed up there, before I moved there. But, um, but we used to uh, get together and wax poetic about the, the good old days in Roslyn, New York. Um, so so uh, in high school and so on, I, there were books, um, a lot of kids to play baseball with. And I also started playing guitar, which believe it or not is going to become important in this story coming forward. Um, went off to college and Jay Barney mentioned that he thought he was going to be a lawyer. Uh, I also thought when I left for college that I was going to be a lawyer. Uh, at some point I had read this autobiography of Louis Neiser who was a famous attorney and that led me to Clarence Darrow's autobiography and blah, blah, blah. So law looked good. I took economics as an undergrad because that seemed like something useful if you were going to be an attorney. Um, and then I applied to law school afterwards and got into a few places. But while I was in college, I played in a rock and roll band and we were, it seemed like we were doing pretty well playing in Boston and in, in the college and also in the, the clubs in Massachusetts. Um, and so at the end of college, we decided to take a year or so and see how far we could take the band. And the answer was not very far, but I needed a day job while I was playing music. And I also needed something to keep my parents mollified because they did not think this was the most brilliant career move I had ever made. So I became a paralegal in a law firm and it was a prominent law firm in Boston. And maybe it was just my firm, maybe it was just my division, but every single lawyer that I worked with was unhappy. And they used to come into my office all the time and complain and bemoan their fate. And these always ended with, you know, Brian, don't make the same mistake I did. So finally, you know, I may be a slow learner, but finally I got the point and looked around. One of my friends was working in management consulting and she seemed pretty happy. So I managed to get a job with her firm, worked there for two years, and then decided to go to business school, fully expecting that I would just, I was going to sort of punch my card and go back to consulting, which I really did love. Um, but then there was this, I happened to go to MIT for my MBA and Rebecca Henderson had just joined. So she was there, my first two, my two years there were her first two years as a professor. And uh, she introduced this elective on the economics of technology strategy. I decided to take it. And the, only about 20, 25 kids took the course. And it was like a PhD seminar. And it was incredible. Part of which it was exposure to stuff that I had never seen before. And part of which is, if you know her, she's very charismatic. And so she made it, you know, she really pulled us all in. 
Um, I think five out of the 25 of us ended up going on for doctoral studies. So that's, so Alan Afwa at Michigan was one of my classmates. Um, I, I can't remember if Marshall Van Alstyne was also in that class with Rebecca or not, but the point is that sort of turned me to thinking very seriously about academia, which was new to me. There were no academics in my family. And um, I spent some time talking to her and to Michael Cusimano and they guardedly encouraged this path. So then I applied to PhD programs and uh, that's how I got into PhD, decided to go. Now, the other piece of it is I really didn't approach PhD programs sort of the right way because I was still sort of shallow and not thinking about it right. So for me, I only wanted to go if I could live in Boston or the Bay Area, which meant I applied to four places. Luckily, I got into one and, uh, and I went there. So that's how I got to the PhD program. That's how I got to Berkeley, BPP, Haas. We had read in Rebecca's course, some of Williamson's work, some of Thies's work, some of David Maury's work. So it was a, a, a very exciting place. For, it wasn't just nice to be in the Bay Area. It was nice to be there because of the faculty that I knew were there. Um, have I answered the question? Did I get us to where you wanted me to be? Yes, you did. I can, I can ask you the, you know, the continuation of the story. So. Uh, how did you, how was your studies uh, there, you know, how did you end up with your dissertation research, who were the influential people, dead or alive, if you will, I mean, even at the time, you know, the earlier researcher, people still, uh, you know, actively involved in your career. Sure, so, so I went there and uh, I ended up having, it was a, the Berkeley at that time, it's still great, but at that time, it was a fabulous place to be. So you had, uh, in my department, we had David Teese, we had David Mowry, we had Oliver Williamson, uh, several others who were a little more, who were great, but a little more distant from the kind of work that interested me. In OB, we had Glenn Carroll and John Freeman, for example. Uh, so you got exposed to, you know, the transaction cost, you got exposed to organizational ecology and things like that. You got exposed to uh, some network stuff. You got exposed to the resource-based view and capabilities because this was just when David was turning from capabilities to dynamic capabilities. Um, so it was a fabulous place to spend time. I worked most closely with David Maori as a mentor for the first couple of years. So he was he was probably a person that I relied on. Even though Tease was my chair and I spent a lot of time with Williamson, Maori was probably the one I cried to the most along the way, and and he um, was willing to listen and and guide and encourage uh, along the way. And I don't remember how I came up with the topic. It was sometime in the third year. Uh, I remember reading an awful lot. And at some point, it, it came to me that um, there was work on diversification that was getting hot again because of the resource-based approach to thinking about related diversification. And back in Rebecca's class, I had read this work by Adam Jaffe uh, thinking about technological positions. And it struck me that if there was some way to map these together, uh, then I might be able to say something about a firm's position, its technological position, where it's, um, what businesses its technological resources might be useful for, and, and use that as a way of being a little more precise in thinking about how a firm diversifies. So that's where the idea came from, and, and, and it went from there. You talk about people who helped. Other than the, the faculty I mentioned, uh, and, and obviously the Berkeley BPP student cohorts. We were a very close cohort, we still are. And, and so I remember spending hours bouncing ideas off of uh, Jackson and, and uh, Nickerson, John DeFigueredo, Joanne Oxley and so on. Um, 
one person who really helped me, there's a guy named Sam Cordham. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Um, uh, he's an economist. Uh, he was at Boston University at the, at the time. He's I, then he's at University of Chicago. I'm not sure if he's still there. But the key point of this is to do what I wanted to do in my dissertation. I needed to have some way of mapping patents into from their SIC code uh, from their patent classes into SIC codes. He had done some work using Canadian data to do this, and so I wrote him out of the blue. He's an assistant professor working hard, and I'm someone he's never heard of. And I sent him a question about, could he share the stuff? And he wrote back and said, uh, yeah, I'll share it with you. Get on a plane, come out here to Boston, and I'll spend a day with you, working side by side with you to make sure you understand the data. And then you'll take it away, which was kind of stunning that, that he was willing to give that time. So it was, it was not a long-term help in the sense that we've been in touch every day since, but it was a crucial thing that came out of an act of kindness that I think is, is one of the nice things we see in academia. Um, so that's where the idea came from. Those are some of the people that were involved. Bronwyn Hall was also quite crucial uh, and was on my uh, committee in, in making everything reach fruition. Can you also tell us how did you end up in, at Rotman twice? Yeah, okay. So, so there you are. And uh, as, as we all know, if we've been through it, and if you're PhD students, you know, you can look forward to this, but when you go on the job market, um, it's a constrained optimization. So there's a set of schools that have jobs available that year. You send out, hopefully you get some flyouts, and, you know, you, presumably you take the most desirable offer from the offers that come in. And so in my, so the short version is, uh, Rotman was, was for me the um, the one that it was the constrained optimization offer that came through for me. So I talked at a few other, uh, some other places. Um, some came through, some didn't. And Rotman was the one that wanted me that most appealed to me out of the very, very limited set that I had uh, to choose from. As it happens, it also enabled me to fulfill an obligation I had incurred when my wife and I were negotiating over marriage a few years before. Um, she, she had stated that she really wanted to live outside of the US in an English speaking country for at least a couple, three years. And she was really thinking, you know, Scotland or New Zealand. But I do study incomplete contracting. So um, I, I got her to Canada and um, I figured I'd fulfilled my part of the bargain there. So Rotman also helped deal with that. So I was there for three years and I loved it. I really had a good time at Rotman. It was a very supportive environment. And, um, but then I ended up getting a call from a few schools when I was in my, uh, some early in my third year about coming down to give seminars. And they turned out to be job talks. Actually, they had, weren't advertised as job talks, but they were. Um, and so, uh, and I ended up uh, at that point deciding, choosing to go to, to HBS and, um, so we moved down there and there were many things I liked about HBS, but there were also many things I missed about the Rotman School and that missing didn't go down over the years. And so um, sometime in my third year, I called back the Rotman School and said to the Dean who was, uh, Roger Martin was a very, uh, very effective Dean. Uh, I basically said, you know, your prodigal son might be willing to return home and they were kind enough to offer me tenure right off the bat. And so it made it very easy to make the decision to return. 
and um, so that's how I ended up at Rotman twice. And it seems to have been a good decision. The school has been wonderful at funneling. It happened to be at a point where it was growing a lot, and and the dean's office was very committed to providing us what we needed to be able to attract great people. And so I mean, we've managed to build, I think, a, a wonderful department, and it's been great to be part of that. Speaking of these early years, can we dwell on a little bit more these early formative years, both in PhD and your pre-tenure years? Uh, some of the challenges that we all go through in years are similar, otherwise are others are you know specific to who we are, what we do, where we are in our you know both personal and professional life. What was the some of the highlights and lowlights of your early career? Yeah, okay. Well, so one of the lowlights, and this I guess goes out most of the PhD students who are on the call, is I don't know what your experience is like in the, your PhD programs. For me, um the PhD was not a particularly happy experience for me. So I, I've talked, there were faculty I, I, I liked and admired and I loved the students, but on a day-to-day -day basis, I found it quite, it was, it's not the, um, it's not a big ego stroking experience, at least not at Berkeley. I, and I don't think at Rotman either. I don't know what it's like elsewhere. So there was not a week that went by when I didn't at least once say, I don't know, you know, why I'm here. I, maybe it's time to drop out and go back and take one of those consulting positions. Um, so it was never, there was a five-year low light. I don't know if you want to think of it that way. Um, the key point was within a few weeks after taking the professor job and showing up in Toronto, it got better really fast. So that's the other piece for any PhD students. For some reason, suddenly I'm the same person, but now I guess because I've got the PhD or because I'm at a place that's different from where they were beating me up for five years, people are treating me with respect. So that was nice. In terms of highlights and lowlights beyond that, it's easier to remember the lowlights. The, I, I remember my first acceptance of a paper, my, the, the paper that came out of my dissertation. That was my paper as opposed to co-authored with others. I remember that was a huge experience. It, for whatever reason, it ended up moving relatively smoothly through the process. So it was, uh, it, it, at that point I thought, wow, if it's all like this, <laughs> it's gonna be easy to get papers in every year. It didn't stay that way, but that was a highlight. I remember the first time I looked in social sciences citation index and saw that someone that I didn't know had cited one of my papers. That was a highlight too. So that gives you a flavor for the kind of things, the, the, the bean counting things that made my life good. The first time I taught a course and got very positive feedback at the end of it. Lowlights are things, in the early days, there were a lot of times when I realized I didn't, I thought I knew how to do something and I didn't really know how to do it. And I didn't realize that until I was in the middle of it, which was really painful for me and others. So I remember a dis one of the first discussions I did of someone else's paper. I've seen people discuss papers. I had probably discussed a couple at one point or another, and this was an important discussion in, in a big setting. And I kind of realized a minute or two into it, I had done a really bad, job, but my slides are fixed and I don't know how to fix it at that point. So it was not good for anybody. And I felt terrible. And even today it haunts me. Like I think that was 1999. And even today, every now and then I get that pain of, oh, I, that was bad. Not just for me because of the people whose papers I was discussing. Um, so what I learned from that is to then work really hard to like 
watch what other people, when they're when Harbir Singh is doing a discussion, what exactly is he doing and why does it work? And try to learn from that to help me do a better job. And part of, I think, maturity for me was trying to anticipate those things and proactively prepare rather than have to have a situation where I had hit myself on the head with a hammer before getting there. So that's the kind of low light that I remember. The low lights these days, as you get more senior, are all administrative. Um, I, you muted. Uh, let, let's turn a little bit to you know what else we can you know, uh, learn from you more instrumental way uh, as a master researcher and a, as a master teacher. Uh, in terms of research side, we, you know you mentioned about the early influence, early struggles, and you know all the tri early tribes and how it end up with your dissertation topic. Um, can you talk us as a process, how do you decide on particular research topics? Uh, how do you choose your next question? How do you, you choose your next data if they are, you know, uh, you know, in which order they come? So what is your approach to research? Everybody has different best practices. Can you tell us your best practices? Sure. So I'm not sure I recommend them to other people. Um, So um, usually I just have worked on whatever attracts my attention most at a certain point in time, which is not necessarily the best way to go. It's a little bit dilettante-ish, but, um, but it keeps me engaged. So I guess um, there are topics that get really exciting to me, uh, maybe not to other people like trucking and the transaction cost stuff. Um, but um, but if, if that's what's really interesting to me, I start focusing on that. Um, I usually get bored by the end of the paper. And so I'm not keen to immediately jump in and do a follow-up paper, even though it can be good to do that. Um, so it's, sorry, that's a long way of saying it's whatever happens to catch my interest is a big part of it. There are two other things I'll say though. One is um, almost everything I've done is co-authored. And that's also a theme that I've seen in some of the other Meet the Scholar things. Um, in my case, it's because I get pretty lonely if I do work on my own. The co-authorship is a way of socializing as well as doing work. And there are co-authors I really like to work with, or at least I've had good experiences with them in the past. So frequently the topics end up being, well, I haven't worked with X in a while. Let's bounce some ideas around and see if we can find anything to work on because it's a good excuse for us to spend time together. So there's this interaction between the people that I want to spend time with and the, the uh, ideas that will fit that. Um, so there you go. So it's, and there are times when I've stumbled on data sets that are cool and I wasn't planning to do something, but, but now there's an idea. So for example, the work that Paul Ingram and I have done on Liverpool, um, well, Paul stumbled on it. So he was he was in Liverpool for some reason and stumbled on some data at this museum and contacted me because we had talked about working together. We had done so years before. We talked about working together again. And the question was, um, this is phenomenal data. We think we can find something to do with it. What can we do with it? So from all of that, what, what would I recommend to anyone else? I'm not sure it's a good way to go. I think if you're so the good part of the way I approach things is I'm always interested in whatever I'm working on. Um, the downside is I think I'm probably a little slower at getting things done than I would be if I were a little more programmatic. Uh, 
there's often, especially when you're younger, there's this recommendation, you know, you finish your dissertation, you've got this data set you've invested in, try to get N publications out of it because it's efficient, it's fast, you gain an identity around something. Um, and, and there's a lot to commend that. It just didn't really work for me. That said, I do remember having conversations with Jackson Nickerson years and years ago. We would sit around and say, um, how many papers on a topic do you have to do to sort of be recognized for doing work on that topic? And we ended up deciding three. I don't know where that came from, but we decided. In fact, Kathy Eisenhardt said something similar uh, from a conversation she had with Bob Sutton in her Meet the Scholar thing. So I guess three is the number. And so if you look, we did three trucking papers. Uh, I did end up doing three papers on alliances with Joanne and David, and then with Joel Baum. So, so I guess that in the back of the mind that happens, but the order in which these things occurred was was somewhat haphazard. So Medjin, do you think any of that's helpful or or, or not? For it is, it is. Uh, and especially when, uh, when turning back, you know, these are some of the things that ask yourself, I wish I knew. <laughs> early on. Uh, can you, I mean, along with, along with that, can you also, you talk about you, you know, it is, you know, writing on your own is lonely, you work with the co-authors, you know, you know, for, for intellectual or so for personal reasons. One thing that we all need to figure out relatively early in our careers is to who to collaborate with and how to collaborate with. And we all struggle in our own way. Some got luckier than others, but there is something also in the process, especially in the early career, to learn the collaboration, you know, the who and how and why, you know, if you will. Can you give some uh, your thoughts in that uh, bit, uh, with us? Sure. So well, yeah, a lot of my collaborators actually go back to Berkeley. So if you're lucky enough to be in a place where you spend four or five years with other PhD students and they're nice and you get along with them, that, that helps a lot because that's ended up being useful for me. Um, when I arrived at Rotman, I ended up falling into collaboration with Joel Baum, uh, which was absolutely wonderful. And one of the things that I got from that collaboration was, so this goes to the idea of, which is, won't be novel to anyone, it's good to find researchers who, who have complementary skills or, or, um, or enthusiasms with yours. And that was true for me with Joel, especially at the beginning, because um, Joel is amazing. He's an amazing closer. So I get really excited at the beginning of a project. I also get excited to get it out. But when the reviews come back, um, at least in my early days, part of it is you don't, you have to learn how to respond to reviewers. And, and part of it is you have to learn a little bit to let go of the work is I want it to look exactly like this. And these folks want me to move it over five degrees. Um, Joel was amazing to work with to learn how to close a paper and how to deal with RNRs. So just to give you a sense, in the very first paper we did, um, we sent it off and it comes back with reviews. And I did what I had done more or less up until then uh, for the relatively few papers I had been working on before that, which is I read the review, I cursed a little bit and I put it in a drawer to let it sit for a week, which is what a lot of people recommend. And I came in the next day to the office and Joel handed me the response letter to the reviewers. Because Joel's approach was you sit down and the first thing you do is you write the response letter to the reviewers. And once you've done that, you actually have the roadmap for everything you have to do to turn the paper around. 
and so his um and 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 keep egos out of it right and it was it was really eye-opening for me so number one we were fast at turning things around and number two i've since used that myself as best i can as a very effective way of trying to turn things around so so finding people like that and by the way even when i now think i do it reasonably well it's great to work with joel because he sort of lives for that part so i don't have to spend as that's the complimentary enthusiasm piece so finding those folks with complementary skills or enthusiasms um who are willing to live with your peccadillos uh is useful in my case one of my peccadillos is i tend to I tend to write and rewrite and probably overwrite things before I submit them uh, to get the words the way I want them more than most people do for better or worse. Uh, and I think, so my co-authors sometimes get a little impatient with that, but uh, they're nice enough, they're willing to live with it. And so you have to find people who just like any relationship, I guess you have to find folks who live with your idiosyncrasies. Can you extend the discussion to also the, your uh, interactions, the working with the PhD students? Uh, I checked you are too shy, so, too shy of officially 20 PhD students, so you are almost in the uh, finishing the, the second uh, decimal, if you will. Um, so you have been working very successfully with many PhD students over the years, and this relationship has two sides, right? There is things to do from the side as a faculty, and the things managing the relationships from the other side as the PhD students. Uh, along with the, for example, uh, what you're describing, you start uh, what you learned in your engagement with uh, Joel, you know, you start writing the decision, you know, the response letter, it gives you a roadmap. Uh, that is, uh, this is a very interesting and I mean, that's a wonderful suggestion. Are there other things from your experience from both sides of the aisle, if you will, and for both sides of the relationship in talking with the PhD students? Yeah, you're very kind to, to put it that way. I have been involved with a lot of PhD students. Um, I've almost always been a committee member and not the chair. And um, I actually think if there's, so of all the things that I don't do particularly well, I'm not sure I'm, I, I put being a chair and you know mentoring the student that way would be one of the top things that I'm not as good at as I'd like. Um, when I, so I'm actually really not sure how to answer. I'm, you know what, I'm gonna punt on that question, Mintin, because what I would say is I rely on the kindness. A lot of the other people at the Rotman School are better at that than I am, sadly for me. And and the, you've already interviewed three of them and meet the scholars. So you can probably get better advice from them about that. Sorry. Okay, let me rephrase the questions because I will not let go of it that easily because I've been, uh, as a student, and uh, as a, you know, the co-panels in uh, many sessions on doctoral students with you. So you had uh, many great advice for us to think about, uh, even when I was doctoral student, about to think about dissertation. Uh, let's take it out of the power relationship per se, but can you, uh, what can, uh, what advice you can give uh, to people uh, that are still in the, the, you know, the PhD program in terms of the things that they might want to do, they may be better off doing it now, thinking about their career forward. Sure, okay. That, that's easy, because now I can just do cheap talk. Um, so the, uh, I'm probably not the first one to say it. I'm, again, I'm not sure how much is novel here, but um, the 
the, so as I said, the, my PhD time was not the most happy time of my life, but but it it was very. It's the time when you can invest, I guess. So um, sometimes you've got people who say to you, "Ah, the PhD years; those are the best years of your life." I'm not sure I'd go with that, but they are the best years of your life for investment. So there'll never be another time when you have as much time to just learn stuff. Because once you're a professor, as great as it is, you've got other responsibilities. One reason that it's great is you're getting a higher, a bigger paycheck, but the cost of that is you actually have to do work beyond your just your research. And so um, take as painful as it is, the more that you can cram into your head during the limited time of your PhD, the better. That's the 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 main thing that I would 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 say. And that includes empirical as well as theoretical. So as painful as those courses are on econometrics or whatever, or whatever methods you choose to take, that's the time to try to learn them. Unless you're going to always be able to find a, uh, collaborate, a, a collaborating researcher whose complementary enthusiasm is to do the sophisticated econometrics. Um, so I think I'll leave it there. And Metin, I'll come back. You may be dissatisfied with that because maybe it's the case I've said things that sounded better in our in the other sessions, but that's the one big one I've got here. I'm satisfied, by the way, but I was referring to also the, the, the workshop uh, that, that you did in the past. It was always colorful and, and you know, uh, informative, but what we are mentioning is, is very important uh, because it goes back to one of the things that you said early on, especially you said the, the senior you get, then the administration kicks in. Uh, those roles takes your time, early career, then you need to focus on the teaching and research. So the time becomes one of the most important things to manage. That is your uh, message, and I, I think it's just very, very valuable. Um, can we go to the other important axis of our field? It's our, our profession is teaching. Uh, teaching is, uh, in a way, it is demanding. It is something that arguably we are less prepared in the doctoral, uh, doing our doctoral studies than compared to uh, research. And in, in a way that it can be one of the most time consuming, also one of the most rewarding experiences. And you have been a star teacher for, for a very long time. Uh, what can you tell us about your approach to teaching um, in both relation to your research or just um, or also apart from linked to your research? It's also about what are the effective ways to think about teaching and what to do in the classroom? Sure. So um, I do a range of pedagogical methods from pure case teaching to pure non-case teaching. Almost never lecture, but in the non-case teaching, it's it's closer to a, a toy version of that Rebecca Henderson course I mentioned way at the beginning, where I have the students read articles, sometimes academic articles, sometimes more HBR or some more management review. And the whole point is we're having a discussion about those. But uh, so, so I very much feel comfortable with the Socratic method of, of trying to use questions or whatever to uh, have good discussions and direct conversations to where I want them to go without seeming like I'm directing them. Um, the, you talk a bit, you mentioned the issue of research and how it fits with, oh, I'm sorry. And the other thing about teaching is um, 
remember I'm a frustrated musician, so I liked being on stage. It's just the stage didn't like me. So having a being in a room where I've got a captive audience um, helps. It, it, I'm comfortable with that. And to a large degree, my teaching, like a lot of my life, is I I try to amuse myself. And as long as that happens, things are okay. And with luck, other people like it as well. You can ask my long-suffering wife and daughter if if they think that's a good way for me to behave. But um, but that also happens in the classroom, and it seems to work a lot. Um, on the issue of research and teaching, so yeah, I try to bring research, not necessarily my research, but our, like, the collective wisdom of strategic management, academic research and knowledge, I try to bring that into the classroom where I can. Um, and frankly, I, I think that's, I mean, if you're teaching in an MBA program at a research institution, I, I think, kind of think that's really important. As a quick digression, I spent a couple of years as uh, an associate dean downstairs of, of research and stuff like that and faculty stuff. And um, I got to see how the budgets of our schools work. And, you know, salaries of faculty are a big part. And if you're at a research institution, right, you are teaching fewer courses per year because you're doing, at least the theory is you're doing research, so you don't teach as much. So your cost on a per course basis is huge. We have to convince students that it's worth paying those kinds of tuitions to come, uh, basically to justify our salaries. And the only way I can think of for doing that, um, beyond something like, well, the brand name of, a, of school X is such that just walking in and then walking out increases your salary, the only other way we can do it is to say, look, you want to come to a place and get taught by research active faculty because you're getting cutting edge stuff that is beyond what you would get at some other places. So I think it's crucial to bring research in. Um, I try to bring it in the various courses as best I can, not necessarily in inflicting, you know, SMJ or ASQ articles on the students, but bringing in the ideas in a way that's bite-sized and, 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 and user-friendly. So the last thing out of that, I think, is as, as you go out to teach, where I've ended up spending the bulk of my time trying to improve as a teacher, in addition to the part of trying to manage case discussions. And for me, the whole point, the key is to have the board plan laid out. I know how I want the board to look at the end. And it doesn't matter how we get there as long as it kind of looks like that. The other thing is um, working and working and working over an idea until I've found a catchy way a, a way to make it catchy and memorable and understandable to folks who don't spend all their time reading the kind of literature we do. So that's the idea of research into teaching. Um, another flip of your thing would be, do I take things from teaching into my research? And I have not been successful at doing that. I have not spent much time thinking about that. So that's, that's what I got there. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Um, before we turn the floor to the, our audience for questions, uh, we will have a, first a quick uh, picture of, uh, of our room. Um, Joe, can you please help us with the screenshot? Absolutely. So um, everyone, if you're dressed from waist up, as Amina used to say, please turn on your video. We'll be taking a screenshot. One, two, three, say cheese. cheese. Got it. Thank you. Thank, thank, thank you, you very much. much. 
Thank, thank you very much. Um, Brian, uh, we will now uh, turn to the audience for questions. And as you mentioned, your musical career, Heather and Asim has an opening question for your musical career. Asim, want to, or do you want to ask the question? Just oh, I'm sorry, pictures. sure, yeah. Are, are there videos? Can we follow up on your band name? Can we become a I mean, I don't know if there was video back then, but like if there are pictures <laughs> or maybe portraits or something like. Yeah, we can talk. Um, so I, I'm not sure I want to hand out things that will make me blackmailable at some point in the future. Uh, you know, you're going to embarrass me in front of my students or something. But um, the one other story I'll tell about that. So this actually got me a lot of cachet with my students for a number of years. So in my senior year of college, we won the, the Harvard Battle of the Bands. The band that came in second had a guitar, was a band called Joey Thunder. And their guitarist was Tom Morello, who went on to form Rage Against the Machine and then Audio Slave. And so by the, as I would explain to my students, by the property, the college band was better than Rage Against the Machine. Um, so, so there's that. There were actually several bands at Harvard at exactly our time that did end up with record contracts. We were not one of them. No, but I think your point of you bring a little bit of yourself in and you're you know, honest with your students about your research and both about yourself, I think are, are really valid points for people who are gonna start to teach, right? Sort of be, being a human and having a little bit of fun with it, I think is actually a, a good lesson. Yeah, yeah. And, and for those who are um, young and starting out, it's often, you feel when you first are standing up there in the classroom that, especially when you're young, um, I, I need to know more than everyone in the class. And that's not really the case at all. Uh, and so it's, it's much better to acknowledge, this is part of bringing part of yourself in, I guess, but to acknowledge when you don't really know something or at, invite others who may know more rather than to try to be the one who knows everything because you're gonna get found out and it won't be. Pretty. Well, and there's places that tell you to make sure you introduce distance between yourself and the students, especially when you're young or if you're at certain places. I, I never found that to help. I think, you know, being in charge is important, but, you know, creating unnecessary distance doesn't seem like it's necessarily yeah. such a helpful piece of advice. Agreed. And on one last, on that point, I wore jackets and ties when I was teaching when I was young and part of it was presumably a little of it was to to at least look a little older or different than the kids in the class. My dad was also probably the last um, high school librarian in all of New York to be wearing a jacket going into work every day in the in the 70s so it may be part of this family thing but uh, but yeah. Brian, as we started with your musical career, uh, can you, uh, a couple of years ago, you had shared with me your, uh, one of your favorite musicians, Nick Law. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about uh, <laughs> uh, your, um, your uh, interest in him, your, your uh, interactions with him? Sure, so, and I'll just write. So what, what, and I know some of you, I've inflicted this story on, on several people here, I'm sure. And so I'll do a short version. Um, the moral of the story is going to be if there's someone you'd like to meet who you've never met, you actually might be able to get to know that. Like, it might be easier than you think. And being a professor might help because some people seem to be under the impression that we might be interesting to talk to. I don't know why. So there's 
actually done this with a, a few people now, but um, there's a songwriter whom I have admired for many, many years. His name is Nick Lowe. And um, uh, I did manage to reach out with a somewhat unusual letter uh, and to, to get his and his wife's attention. And they agreed to uh, meet Hannah and me, my wife and me for lunch when I was in uh, England for, for, for a semester. So I, I don't really want to give more details than that about how it went. There was a little cyber stalking involved maybe, but the point was, uh, it, and we stayed in touch. So, it, you know, I have a new friend and, and so, and I've done this with a science fiction author whom I like very much as well. There's only one person actually who's where it hasn't worked so far. Um, and so what I get out of this is if there's someone you're interested in meeting, you can think about trying to contact them you know, through email or whatever, and and you may end up with a new friend. You never know. Is that enough detail, Metin? But um, and if you're interested in going and seeing this guy's videos, it's Nicklo N I C K L O W E. A lot of stuff on YouTube going back to the 70s. He was in a band called Rockpile back in the day, and then did stuff solo. Thank you. Um, Louise, uh, do you want to pose your question to um, Brian, please? Uh, yeah, so I uh, made a comment that it's, it's very unusual. Sometimes I've observed that uh, MBA graduates have a difficult time transitioning to doing a PhD. And you're someone who's managed to do it successfully. And you also mentioned a few other of your colleagues managed to, to make this transition. And so I'm wondering if you have advice for um, PhD students who are maybe making this transition from an MBA program, what should they keep in mind or what might be important if they want to be successful? Sure. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Let me, I'll start by observing, by relating what I observe with my MBA students here or back at HBS who thought they might want to go into academia. Um, or I shouldn't say that, who thought that they might want to get a PhD. Every, almost every year, there'll be one or two students that take the strategy course and they're excited by some of what they see and they decide maybe what they want to do is get a PhD. Uh, and I think it's common for MBA students to not really, there's no reason if you're an MBA student, you should know what, an, uh, what a PhD is really about or what academia is about. So they usually show up and talk to me and I try to disabuse them of what it's really, I, mean, I give them some of Williamson's papers and say, you know, read this. And if, you, if you're still interested, then we can talk. And they usually don't come back. Um, so I think the biggest challenge is for an MBA student who decides to do a PhD and doesn't, because, because he or she thinks that it's sort of like an MBA on steroids and doesn't necessarily recognize what what we generally think a PhD is like and what the ultimate goal is, you know, to end up in academia, that's a recipe for disaster. Um, if you're, so I guess if you're on this call and you're a PhD student who, uh, who chose to pursue the PhD because of what I just said, sorry, uh, I'm, uh, I'm not sure that there's any good advice at this point. Now, now you know what it's really like, so you'll have to make a decision as to whether it's something you want to do or whether you want to go back and be a normal person. Um, for, for the MBAs who are successful at it, 
they seem to be folks who have been pretty thoughtful ahead of time, or who found the right, uh, found someone to tell them what it was really going to be like. So, but how 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 did you manage to become successful? What was your secret? Oh well, I'm sorry. Was it that you realized what academia was about? Do you think, or yeah? Well, for me, it was. It all comes back to that Rebecca Henderson course because we were reading academic articles, and so I had a pretty good idea of what to expect if I went there. And even the assignments that she gave in that course, the deliverables, were closer to scholarly deliverables than to half of them were closer to scholarly deliverables than to um, to, to sort of MBA deliverables. So that made it pretty darn clear. Um, and, and, and so I, I do feel that I knew what I was getting into when I first started and went there. And I, I guess temperamentally, it turns out I'm kind of a bookish person who's, who finds the theory of business more interesting than the actual practice of business. So it ended up working out well. I mean, it ended up being the, the moral of the story about all that stumbling around was, you know, all these things happened that I didn't expect to happen. And I ended up falling into what, for me at least, is the absolute greatest job on the face of the earth. Um, before we turn to uh, Gwen for uh, our next question, please feel free to ask the questions. Uh, uh, to Brian in the in the chat as we come through the part, then we will continue asking these questions. Uh, Gwen, can you please ask your question to Brian? Sure. Hi, Brian. Hi. I have a specific question about the concordance. Um, so you talked about a paper, but from my perspective, uh, it is a concordance itself that has made a great impact. I personally used it. Um, but it is not a typical kind of contribution. So I was wondering whether you could provide your perspective on its impact and maybe connect to SMJ uh, encouraging contribution of the data type of submission. Yeah, thanks. That's a, a, a wonderful lead in. So as we've already touched on, my dissertation was about diversification and this patent thing. And in order to thanks to Sam Cortum and all the other people, you know, on whose shoulders I stood. Uh, in order to answer the questions I wanted to answer, I needed to find this way of mapping uh, patents into industries where they were likely to be useful. And um, ultimately managed to do that and created this concordance at the four digit SIC level, which enabled me to then say something about diversification. Uh, at the, then, then you've got this data set and the question is, what do you do with it? You know, do you keep it for yourself only and try to get more papers out of it? Do you make it a public good and maybe still try to get more papers out of it, but you're giving, you know, you don't have monopoly ownership over it anymore. And uh, I decided to make it a public good. Part of which was, I really was, this goes back to being a bit of a dilettante. I was really sick of that topic and didn't think I'd want to publish much more. Uh, on, on that particular topic. So when I arrived at the Rotman School, I posted it, it must still be up online somewhere, although it's now out of date. I posted all of the files for this concordance. So anyone who wanted could download these files and then doesn't matter what your research question is, if you need to be able to say, this firm has a bunch of you know, patented technology, where is it useful? You sort of put it through this crank and it, uh, which you know we can humbly call the Silverman Concordance, and uh, you end up with 
with uh, the industries where this firm has lots of technology that might be useful. And then you can answer whatever question you want to answer. Um, yeah, so that ended up, I know it's been used by a lot of people. I didn't set up, I know some people who've done this sort of stuff and then they also have like a counter so they can see who down, at least keep a count of who downloads it. I didn't do that, but I think it's been downloaded quite a bit and used in a lot of papers. So I guess for me personally, it probably added citations. So yippee, I got some more citations because people had to cite that they were using it. I do like the idea that it ended up helping push the frontiers of, of, of let's assume I'm, I'm going to en engage in the conceit that this public good has helped to push the frontiers of knowledge a little faster than they otherwise would have been in a range of subjects related to innovation and strategy because people had access to this and they could then just use it. Um, so in that sense, it's a contribution. I'm, I'm glad that it's, I hope that it's made some kind of contribution to the field. That leads, as Gwen says, to this idea, um, you'll all, you're all going to have, be in this position where you're going to put together some great data set, I hope, that works for you. And then the question is, do you make it available to others or not? Do you use it for a couple of years and then make it available? Do you, and that's whatever decision you make is fine. But if you choose to make it available, there are now a range of ways to do it. Um, there's, uh, I think Connie Helfat at Tuck has the five portfolio Uber database that where you can store uh, and make these available. And um, they handle a lot of the, you might be concerned if I put it up, I'm going to get oodles of emails from people with questions and I don't want to spend the time on that. Here, they would take some of that uh, and it's set up in a way that you get some credit for doing it. SMJ now has database paper. One avenue of publishing there is um, data. I'll call it a database paper. You can read more precisely about it online, but the idea is there are avenues for making data available as part of a publication at SMJ, which might be quite appealing to people. Uh, so I'd encourage you to think about doing that. And you know, we'll do everything we can to reduce the administrative and logistics costs for you of having to deal with anything that falls, any questions that fall out of that. So yeah, that's more data sets are always, for the field are always good. Thank you, Gwen. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Uh, Rohit, can you please ask your question to Brian? Yeah. Uh, am I audible? I can hear you. Yeah. Hi, Brian. Uh, it was nice hearing your own journey about how you have gone through uh, the PhD and uh, after that. So I just have a quest, query about uh, from the perspective, perspective of a PhD scholar from emerging countries like India. So I belong to India. So uh, what I can see here that the current research environment, which is uh, prevailing here, it's on a very early stage of development. You mentioned that when you go about your uh, thesis topic, it was because of the environment which you have in UC Berkeley, like researchers uh, like diabetes and all, they are working on cutting edge, like uh, dynamic capability and all. So it helped you to understand what uh, topic you should be uh, choosing for your thesis. So how... Uh, PhD scholar uh, from uh, emerging countries should go about uh, choosing a thesis topic. Like there are various uh, topics which are uh, currently published in SMJ on platforms and use of um, um, machine learning in strategy, research and all. 
but because there are resource constraints in countries like that because of proprietary data and there are other things so should we go for upcoming topics like this or should we go for tried and tested topics like alliances business groups and inter internationalization yeah that's that's really yeah it's so so first on the idea of and i I've, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about emerging economies and, and the str has been i think doing let me start over these sorts of venues do a nice job of reducing distance at least a little bit uh, by bringing people together so we can meet like this and and str now has a bunch of things posted that that help to provide information on you know cutting edge ideas and uh, what's seen as cutting edge ideas and so on and so forth um i expect to i hope to see more of that it was something that i was quite eager to to help get started back when i was the division chair at, at sdr and uh i mean the things that have, the advances that have been made i think are, are great um so I'm, I think I hear two different things in your question, Rohit. One is about, or one could be how to keep abreast of what is seen as, as hot topics or the most recent research. Uh, and the other is how to optimally choose a research topic given the uh, pros and cons of whatever environment one's in. So I'm, I hope I got that kind of right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, great. So, so for the keeping abreast of it, you know, the way I, I, if you have access to the journals, right, then, then the way that I keep access to things is I read a lot. Conferences can be useful, but reading the journals uh, or reading working papers is the way that I stay abreast of things. I would hope that that's feasible in many places. I know that there are many universities where the libraries aren't able to actually have the um, uh, subscribe to every journal that I'd, I'd love them to be able to subscribe to. So SSR, I don't know if you're familiar with SSRN or if people here are, but a lot of folks are posting their working papers very close to the publication version often um, on ssrn.com. So that's become a nice source for seeing what's coming down the pike. So, so I don't have better ideas for sort of being abreast of what's going on in the community than reading stuff, if feasible, and being involved in things like this. If other people have good ideas about that, by the way, then as soon as I'm done, please jump in. As far as the topic yeah, I mean, this is going to sound a little bit fatuous. I, I, I think it's great if people can choose topics based on what truly interests them rather than on constraints. That said, if you're in a setting where you don't have access to certain things, that certainly does preclude certain stuff. I guess my concern, the way you framed it about go with a tried and true topic like alliances or whatever is... Um, because it's a tried and true topic, if you don't have a new angle on it, then the work that you do may, it may be hard for people to see the contribution. So no matter what your topic is, there's gotta be something you can point to and say, this is something novel in some way. It, it adds a brick, it builds a new wall, it solves a puzzle. 
Um, I think I'm running out of ideas. Also, oh, I'm sorry. The one other thing I wanted to say, you mentioned proprietary data. So in one of my papers right now, I'm using data from a firm that's here in North America. I can't say which country, but it's somewhere in North America. And uh, the firm was kindly willing to share some data. And so at least in principle, I'd like to think that no matter what country you're in, it might be feasible to get data from within a firm wherever you are, for example. And then uh, you've got the same advantage as any as I do, because you've got some firm specific data. I know that in different countries, firms are more or less receptive to doing this, but it may be a way of going forward. So I don't know if that helped at all, but that's, I think, where I'm going to end. Let me quickly ask, did anyone else have a better answer than that or a comp or wants, wants to augment what I said? Uh, in response to Roy's questions? Okay, thanks a lot, Brian. Yeah, it really helps. Sure. Um, in, in fact, the, the next question is uh, sort of related, uh, but other. Uh, I will turn to you know the the B to ask his uh, question. It is also about not only doing being there also doing the teaching and research about uh, emerging countries and also including Africa. Uh, but before I turn the, uh, you know, if you will, the microphone to Guy, uh, also, uh, if you had a chance to, when you have a chance, you can click the uh, link that uh, Rich sent, um, that is the who's the second lead singer, you know, uh, from 1980, it really looks like you. Um, Guy, uh, can you please uh, ask your question? Brian? Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, dear Professor Brian, you participated. Uh, uh, can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can hear you very yes. well. Excellent. Thank you. You participated in a special issue for the Africa Journal of Management on Sustainability and Global Value Chain in Africa recently. Uh, I would like to know how you came to be interested in Africa and in terms of the strategic issue um, to drill down for that continent, what will it be? And last question uh, related to the African, uh, let's say focus. If you had the opportunity to teach in Africa, uh, what country will it be? And what would you like to teach us? If I say teach us, it's because I'm also a, a PhD student uh, in Africa and uh, of course, interested with strategy, and uh, uh, also a member of the AFAM, which is the association liaised to uh, this African Journal of Management. So um, thank you, Professor. Sure, thank you. Um, let's see if I, forgive me if I, I'll try to answer all of those, and forgive me if I forget something along the way. Um, so yes, there is, uh, look for the forthcoming, it'll be in the summer, an issue of the um, African Journal of Management, a special issue uh, that's going with some co-editors that's going to focus on exactly this sustainability and global value chains. And we're right now at the stage of um, getting the referee reports on, on the, the second round of, of, of R&Rs. And so it's pretty exciting. So my interest in Africa um, didn't start out as an academic interest. This is another one of these stumbling things. Um, and so I'll give a really short version. I'm happy, Guy or anyone else to talk at length about this when we meet in person sometime. But um, when I was at Berkeley, 
I met, it was actually by working on a presidential camp, on Paul Songus's presidential campaign in the primaries. He lost to Bill Clinton in the Democratic primaries. But someone else we were working with became a very close friend and ended up becoming the country director of the Peace Corps in Cameroon. So he and his wife and their daughter moved to Cameroon around 2000. And uh, their daughter is the same age as my daughter. So at some point, maybe 2003, what, at some point we ended up going over to visit and spent some time in Cameroon, which, which we loved. And um, it, it awakened, you know, from there it awakened a new interest uh, in, in, in the continent, I mean, the continent, it became so clear that the continent has so much to offer and, um, and, and there's so much promise and potential and, and the idea of somehow helping to unlock that would be incredible. And so it ended up generating, so that was the genesis of my interest. And I've since been to a number of different countries. Most recently, I guess, was Uganda. Oh God. Uh, Moves, Makerere University Business School, spent a little time there, for example. Um, specifically to where I would want to go. So I, I'm open to visiting anywhere. I am going to have a family member in uh, West Africa, in Ghana, pretty soon. And so the universities in Accra are looking more and more appealing to me as a place for a visit. Uh, and, um, and I guess the, the, what, there was something else. I, I'm, I've been working with the folks at FM on whether there's a way to create a series of videos that might provide, that might better expose PhD students at many African institutions to some of the stuff that's being done in North America, uh, whether it be sort of econometrics the way it would be taught here, and, and then it's just available. Uh, so we'll see if we're able to create some, some better knowledge flows back and forth. And it's not intended to just be one way, it's intended to be two way. And uh, I, I just, I'm looking forward to being a part of whatever can flower there. So I had a feeling that you had one other question along the way and I forgot it, but we can always follow up offline about that if I missed something. Thank you. You didn't miss anything. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. Then let's uh, turn to Stein, who has a question on impact. By the way, I'm, I apologize if I'm butchering his name. I'm trying my best, but <laughs> I apologize. Can you please ask your question to Brian? Yeah, sure. Uh, no, thank you. No problem about the name, by the way. I'm, I'm used to all kinds of pronunciations. Uh, no, I had a question on yeah on impact. So so Brian, you have like you have a lot of very interesting papers, uh, and some of those have actually garnered a lot of citations, so, and they even like went through this barrier of a thousand citations per paper. And I just, was just wondering about your gut feeling about uh, what explains that. So I, I know it's hard to actually pinpoint to the precise reason, but to what extent do you think that that was due to having the right idea at the right time versus you actively promoting a certain piece of research by, by really going out there before it's published even and, and going to many conferences and after the paper is published to like give seminars on it even still then. Um, or would you just say, well, it's, it's just some ideas were just better than others, and that, that's what explains it. Sure. Um, 
Yeah, uh, so I, I think I'm gonna go with your first thing, which is largely the right idea at the right time. And by the way, right idea, it doesn't necessarily mean the best idea. It just means uh, the, the, an idea that, that scratched a particular itch that um, hit at a certain time. If you look, you'll see that the papers of mine that have typically received the most citations tend to be papers on alliances that came out at a certain point. And that was it. That's when the alliance literature was sort of exploding. And these papers happened to touch on particular issues that had were, well, I think that they touched on particular issues or raised certain puzzles and then gave a potential explanation or resolution to the puzzle. And so they ended up becoming so at, at, at exactly the right time when people were writing a lot of papers. There's also, um, so I think that's the bulk of it. I hate to think that it's because they were better ideas because um, I think all of my ideas are equally good. And so the idea that the others are not as good is, is would be a shame. Plus the ones that are more highly cited are the older ones, which I guess in part is because they've been around longer, but that would mean my ideas have been getting worse over time. The um, So I think it's much more about the field and the amount of articles that are being written in particular fields. You did mention about sort of actively shopping the ideas around. I, I think I tend to go to more conferences than most people. And I definitely tried to go to every single conference I could early in my career. It wasn't so much to try to get, I didn't think of it as here's an idea and I want to get it out. I thought of it more as I'm in Toronto. This is funny. If I'd been at SUNY Buffalo, I wouldn't have felt this way because it was within the US. But because I was in Toronto, which was, you know, 80 miles north of the border, there was the sense, maybe still true, certainly true 25 years ago, that if you're outside the US, people might forget about you. And so I deliberately tried to go to every conference I could just to remind people I existed. Um, whether that did end up sort of propagating the ideas further, I, I don't know. The last thing I'll say about this, by the way, is um, at some point, I'm, I'm not sure how many people who've cited the papers have read them. <laughs> At some point, I think an article, some articles in any, it's been cited a lot. I've seen it cited in a lot, so I'm just gonna cite it. I, let me say it this way. I've seen some of my articles cited where the sentence describing what's in the article bears no resemblance to what I think the article is about. I'll just leave it there. Okay, thanks. Could I just very quickly follow up on because you mentioned that you you like still read like a lot of working papers and so on. So that struck me as I I actually meet a surprisingly high number of senior faculty who say that they basically don't read papers anymore. Um, so so would it be fair to say that that being able to come up with the right idea at the right time depends to a very large extent of like keeping up with the literature as, as best to the best of your ability. Would that be fair to say that? For me, I think that's true. I don't know. Others may be more talented at doing it without reading as assiduously. Part of my reading is in my editorial role. I, I'm, I feel compelled to stay on, to know what's going on and sometimes see working papers to, to invite them to, you know, you should think about SMJ. Um, but I'm not sure and maybe I just have very limited interest. I'm not sure what I would do with my time if I weren't reading a lot of uh, papers. So, uh, but yeah, um, Tim Tim was saying to me before this, Tim Fult was saying to me before this went on, 
he just posted this three and a half minute video of me talking about framing a research question on the STR page because it came out of something else that we were doing. Um, and so I, and I guess, so now you should all go watch it to, you know, get the views up, but more, more to the point, the, the idea of framing, or you don't have to watch it because I'll tell you right now, the key point is to try to, to get someone else excited about what you're excited. I find it useful to frame it as a puzzle rather than just, you know, no one has done X before. Well, maybe that's because X didn't need to be done. Here's this puzzle or this tension. And then the paper is released to try to solve, resolve that. Needed to have a good puzzle is to know what's been going on in the literature. Okay, thanks. Uh, next, Mohina has a question on the, the job market. Mohina, can you please pose your question? Thank you, Professor. Uh, Professor Brian, um, yeah. actually, I am from India, and I'm currently pursuing PhD in consumer behavior, but I'm very much interested in strategy talks, so that's why I'm attending so. And, uh, and I look forward to the opportunities uh, present in US, Canada. But while looking at those, I, I am confused, like what should, other than good publications, what should be there uh, in terms of skills, what should I have to apply in those countries and get selected as a faculty or maybe for the postdoc right. initially? Right. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a tough one. Let me tell you what we do at the Rotman School when we're trying to fill uh, assistant professor positions. We don't normally have postdocs, so I can't speak to that. Um, but, but take it that what I'm saying is, could well be idiosyncratic just to the Rotman School. Um, we get you know, a lot of applications from people and they include, of course, the CV, the, uh, an example of research, which is typically called the job market paper, uh, you know, some recommendation letters, some, some other things, maybe some evidence of, of teaching of teaching experience at the Rotman School, our primary criterion when we're trying to to and and you know I think this year we got between two hundred and fifty and three hundred applications for one slot, and we have to somehow get that down to like five or six people to bring in uh, for for interviews. Um, The, the, the uh, and, and this year, those numbers might have been unusually large because it's such a strange year and a lot of schools didn't have jobs. So next year won't be quite so daunting, I should say that. But for us, the single biggest criterion is evidence of potential to do excellent research, where that means it's going to be publishable in, 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 in strong journals and, and even beyond that, like it, and it's, we read it and think it's really good. So we end up basically reading all the job market papers. And that's a lot. Of, so I told you how many papers there were. So that's a lot of um, papers that we read because we've ended up deciding um, it's the best way to get a window into someone's research. So for us, the single most important thing is to spend as much time as possible writing one paper that's really good. So like one chapter of your dissertation or many people write three essay dissertations, one essay that's really, that you throw your heart and soul into. And that's what we're going to look at to decide, you know, is there evidence of, of research potential here? It, 
there are many other schools, there are many schools where another strong indicator is seen as well, if you've already published or you've got to revise and resubmit at a, at a journal that seems to be a strong journal, that's also evidence of research excellence. Um, and, and that makes sense. We often have trouble, those are very often co-authored with the senior faculty member and we have trouble understanding how to, what to infer from that, which is why we choose to look much more at the job market paper. Um, is that helpful? Or did, were you looking for more? No, sure. This is fine, Professor. Thank you. Sure. Next, we have a question from Jiang Cheng about the technical contributions in STR, um, it's STR division or strategy. So uh, can you please ask your question to Brian? Uh, yes, so so first of all, thanks for professor's lecture. So my question, so first of all, I'm a PhD student. So what I'm going to talk uh, will be wrong. So please correct me. So I'm thinking what, uh, how to understand the theoretical contribution in strategy, because to, so I think strategy is kind of applied social science. So do we have to uh, relate our theory with practice? And to what extent should we relate this to? And also, do we have to validate our theory using cases? So for example, if I wanted to learn, uh, study learning theory uh, from maybe merges and acquisitions, so do I have to make sure the firm really learn from the experience? Thank you. Sure. Um, so, So and two questions there, if I got it. One is, um, does there have to be a strong connection to practice? It was one. And then the other is, what, what type of proof or evidence do we look for to support or refute our, our theoretical um, statements? So on the practice side, uh, in strategy, I kind of like the way you put it. I think of it as, yeah, so let's say it's applied social science. What is, what many people would say is important about strategy though, is that there should at least be the, a clear prospect of how it could be applied to practice. So you don't have to do it. I don't have to do it. I've written lots of papers that I think of as largely on the applied social science side, but there's still a couple of paragraphs in the paper that kind of say implications for managers or for policymakers would be X, Y, and Z. And sometimes I even believe those paragraphs, but um, I think it is important to have them. In some ways, that's something that, well, I won't say anymore. I think it's important to have that. That is a touchstone that many folks in strategy think is worthwhile. It's evidenced in SMJ, for example, by the fact that we now have not just a, you basically write two abstracts on the papers. There's the research abstract, which is written for the applied social science part. And then there's the managerial abstract, which is written if any practitioners are reading the article, but also to, to help crystallize what the implications for practice might be. So I would encourage you to try to find that, but that doesn't mean it has to be the bulk of what you do, right? It's, it's a small, it could be the bulk, but it could just be a small piece. As far as the, your other question really gets to sort of what's the standard of proof for anything that we theorize. And that's a big philosophy of science question about falsification and so on. Um, this, 
in a crass sense, this ends up being a conversation between you or a tug of war between you and your reviewers or editor or dissertation chair and committee. Um, if you are writing a paper that hypothesize, makes some predictions about learning in mergers and acquisitions, maybe as firms do more of them, they get better at them or something like that. Um, I would sure, un unless it's some formal model, which can stand on its own, the tradition in our field would be that there would be probably some empirical test to confirm or refute that. And then the question is, what's a test that's sufficient? And there are many different ways you can go. So I don't want to say, but, but I would expect to see some kind of test. Now, it could be a quantitative test where you end up saying, I've got stuff, here are some firms and I can see each each M&A they do, the impact on their st abnormal stock market return. And um, it gets better over time if I do a quantitative econometric analysis. And you'll deservedly so get a lot of pushback about, is that evidence of learning? Or is it evidence of something else? And uh, even assuming that the econometrics are done right. And that's fine. That's exactly what we spend our time arguing about is um, you've demonstrated some empirical regularity. Let's try to understand the mechanisms more. And that's exactly normal science. If you did it with cases where you actually got to sit and observe over time that people um, either ethnographically, you could watch what they do, or you get into their archives and you read and you see that the memos that they wrote were originally 50 pages and it took four months to make a decision. And now they're just two pages. You, you can use that sort of thing too. That's fine. There's no one right way to do it. I do think you'll, be encouraged as you try to publish, you'll be encouraged to have some kind of empirical evidence of things. Thank you. Sure. Um, before we up, I have two quick questions, wrap up questions. Uh, one is just out of curiosity. Uh, during COVID, many people that I know get into baking and the Great Britain, British Baking Show. Did you start doing anything new uh, in the COVID life? Did anything change? Um, you know, it's life as usual. You know, it. Uh, not much new. I, I started when COVID first hit. I thought, great, I can come back and start uh, get really get good at the guitar again. And I've I've played a little more, but not as much as not enough. Um, I'm not sure my family really knows how to relax very well. And so we're still kind of doing the same things and uh, getting pulled in the same directions for the most part, just indoors more rather than outdoors. Uh, and, and one last question. Uh, you mentioned many things that you really like uh, happening and want to see like, you know, data sharing, having, you know, linking more research the link between research and practice, the dissemination of research. If you want, if you were to pick one or two things that you want to see our people do or do more moving forward, what would they be? Right. Wow, that's a tough one. I may have to punch on this one too. So, I think that uh, strategy is a wonderful place because we've got a lot of people working on a lot of different topics. And they're all pretty interesting and people, it's a big tent and people can pursue it, topics of interest to them. And sometimes I read working papers or publications that I think aren't going to be interesting to me and they turn out to be fascinating. So for the most part, I just want people to keep 
doing what they're doing. I think the main thing I would love to see, sometimes I think that strategy that scholars, but I'll focus on strategy scholars, we're not necessarily as, we could use a little more humility as we do our studies. And what I mean by that is, uh, and some of me, this comes back a little bit to the mechanisms stuff that I was just mentioning. Um, we sometimes have a tendency to do a study and find one pattern and then sort of say, aha, I've demonstrated that, you know, this thing works all the time. I, this, this, this is the way the world works. And I always get a little frustrated reading when people overclaim like that. So this is a minor thing, but as you're working on your papers, I'd, I'd, I'd just love to see folks be a little more humble about what they can actually, what, what they're, this is particularly for the empirical work, what they're really finding, and then what we can really infer from it and how far that travels. I think those, that would be the, the main thing. But other than that, I just love to see people indulge their passions. So my passions took me to history and to political science, which, you know, and I, I know other people here are gonna have their own. So at some point indulging your passions is a good way to stay happy in this field. Do I have a minute to make my final sort of pontification remarks? So if, if people will indulge me, I'll just make, I'll respond to one thing from Rich McAdock about Pete Townsend, and then I'll, uh, I'll um, give a, a, a valedictory that I often give. So some of you may have heard it before. So first, right, uh, Rich actually wrote to me uh, a month or two ago that he had found the picture of Pete Townsend, and he he said, you know, I think you look like him. And Rich, I please don't post this, but I went back and found my uh, my high school yearbook photo, and the Rich, would you agree that the um, resemblance is uncanny back then? Well, yes, yeah, certainly, certainly, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so right, it's it's um, there's that. There are, there are some youthful pictures of Pete out there. So yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it there was so again that's a for better or worse thing, but there you go. The um, the last thing I would leave, and this is largely for the younger folks out there, is um, we. So, there you are in the field, very often you're at an institution where you're going to be going up for tenure after a certain number of years, and there's a sense that the, you need a certain number of publications as part of that. Obviously, quality hopefully matters, but quantity is often a, a seems to be a big deal. And so there's this, we very often feel this very strong push to generate a lot of quantity. And what that can often lead to is I've got this one paper, and um, you know it could be one big paper, but if I sort of slice and dice it, I might be able to get two or three papers. I add one variable here, I just do this. And then in another paper, I add one variable here, and then I add a variable. And then, you know, God forbid, I, I remove a variable here and it's a new paper, and then I've got three or four. Um, and, and I would encourage you to try to resist that urge if you can, and I know it's difficult, but the basic idea is, um, uh, if we think of this business as a repeated game that's hopefully going to go on for a long time, what what I hope really matters is is how people feel when they read your papers or how I want you when you see a paper by Brian Silverman in whatever journal say, oh, that's probably going to be interesting. I should read it rather than, oh, my God, Silverman's, you know, taking up another few pages with another painfully incremental variation on this thing that he's already published four times before. 
Um, so I would encourage you to resist the urge. What my colleague Joanne Oxley calls this urge to get this whole is resist the urge of the MPU, where that stands for the minimum publishable unit, right? Try not to get dragged into that um, because, well, for the reasons that I just said. Um, and frankly, when it comes to the tenure time too, there is a lot of, people do care about the quality. It's not, well, this person wrote six things or eight things or 10 or 20, but you know, they're all basically the same paper. That doesn't go over well with folks. So try to resist that urge. I'd like to think I try to make each of my papers as big as it can be. I don't always, but, but I try. So that's what I got for you. Thank you, Brad. Um, this is the end of uh, our Meet the Scholar session with our distinguished scholar, uh, Brian Silverman. Uh, thank you for everyone uh, having with us with the past one of our, thank you, SDR and Joe for organizing this series. And of course, the special thanks to Brian for being with us and uh, sharing uh, his ideas, uh, his thoughts, his suggestion, his wisdom, and above all the inspiration that he, he provided to us both about uh, today and in us and hopefully in the future. Thank you, Brian, and thank you everyone. Thank you very much. Thanks.